Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? or also for the uncircumcised. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. This is God's word. Amen. So thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett, uh, one of the pastors here. It's good to see you uh, at this beginning of the new year. We return to Romans this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking again at this great book that Paul's written, this gospel uh, and we're going to take, really, all the way until the summer to continue to work our way through it. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing for a preacher, and uh, it probably is the only time in the next 20 years that we'll do this in this church. We're going to take our time, uh, because what Paul says here is so uh, tantamount to Christianity. So important. Uh, the things here are life, these are life-rearranging, life-changing truths that Paul is teaching us here. And so we want to take our time and do that. We're excited to be back in this book. Remember... As we get going this morning, the, uh, Paul's letter here is gospel. That's verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Christianity is good news. It's not good advice. And that is probably important for us to remember here at the beginning of the year. It is an announcement of something that has happened in history. God came into the world in Jesus Christ to rescue and redeem his people and the entire cosmos from the tyranny of sin and death. The message of Christianity is not... 
do this and this, and you can have the life you want. It's not self-help. It's not positive thinking. It's not a program for self-improvement. All of that, all of that needs to be said right now at, here at the beginning of the year. I'm, I'm a big New Year's resolutions guy. I have a long list of goals for every year. I mean, listen, pray for my wife. When I go on vacation, one of the things I do is I make a list of goals for the vacation. It's true. I'm not kidding. I say, what are your goals for this vacation? And she looks at me like, are you dumb? What is your deal? I'm a big, I'm a big goals, resolutions guy. And so pray for me and pray for her. But I, I was working through my resolutions this past week, uh, you know, getting ready because it's the new year and you can come up with all kinds of things that you're going to try to do this next year. And, and then we read uh, from Jude in community Bible reading. And I, I was reading through uh, the book of Jude and I came to verse 20. And here's what Jude, here's what uh, it says in Jude 20. It says, but you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. And I just stopped. And I took out my pen and I drew a line through all of my resolutions. And at the top of the page that I was working on, I wrote my one resolution this year for 2018, keep yourself in the love of God. That's my goal for 2018. It's my goal for me. It's my goal for you. It's my goal for us as a church. Because Christianity is gospel, what matters most is what God has done for me in Christ, not, I will, not what I will do for him in 2018. And I would remind you, in the first 11 chapters of this, of this letter of Romans, there are only seven times in 11 chapters, get this, seven times in 11 chapters that Paul tells you to do something. The rest of the time, he tells you what God has done for you. And that's really significant. You can't behave differently until you start believing differently. That's what that means. And Christianity is about believing. The power for change is believing it's keeping yourself in the truth of God's love for you and so that's what uh, we need to try to do and Romans is an extended argument for just that for believing the gospel so in order to believe you have to think the Bible says that your heart is set against the truth of the gospel and so you have to make the argument to your heart you have to reason you have to answer the objections that your heart makes to the reality of God's Grace in Jesus. You have, you have to take yourself in hand, Lloyd-Jones would say. You have, to, you have to think. And so I, I want to say that the anti-intellectual bias in American evangelicalism is a cancer. This idea that the spiritual and the intellectual are opposed to one another, it just simply is not true. That we, 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 We've come to believe that spiritual must mean simple. It must mean practical. It's anti-intellectual. And it's producing a people of faith that have no ability to think themselves out of spiritual problems. They're slaves to their appetites and to their emotions. And so I want to just say at the beginning of this extended period in Romans that deep theological truth and affect and spiritual vibrancy in the heart go hand in hand. Lloyd-Jones called it logic on fire. Logic on fire. And Romans is full of logic on fire. It's full of what ifs. And what thens and therefores, there's logic, there's doctrine. These are going to be doctrinal sermons. And I just want to say that the most practical sermons are doctrinal sermons. So, as we try to reorient ourselves to this book, what is Paul's argument? What is, what is the doctrine? Where are we? We're kind of getting into, we're, we're kind of entering back in the middle, into the middle, so we have to remind ourselves. Let me summarize. And here's what Paul's been saying. You 
need a righteousness. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. That's 117. Mankind is not right with God. And if you're not right with God, then nothing's right. C.S. Lewis said that, that communion and intimacy with God is the fuel that we were made to burn, just like a car needs gasoline. And without God, without intimacy and communion with him, we don't work. It doesn't matter how well things are going. If we don't have that, nothing's going really well. It's a sham. And so we need him to work right. Sin is more than just doing bad things. It's a condition. It's a state of being. And righteousness is too. And so here's the picture I want you to get in your mind. Sin is being broken down on the side of the road with smoke billowing out of the hood of the car. Righteousness is zooming down the Audubon at 120 miles an hour with the engine humming. Sin is, sin is the fish flopping and flapping around on the kitchen counter. Righteousness is the fish making the same exact motion, but gliding through the water because he's in the environment he was made for. The gospel is good news about what God has done to make you right through Jesus. So the question that we need to take up, and then we're going to continue on this morning with Paul here in chapter 4, is, well, how do you get the righteousness you need? And that is what Romans is about. It's what this particular passage is about. It's Paul continues to make his argument. And here we're going to see three things this morning. I want you to first see the doctrine. How do you get the righteousness you need? There's a doctrine that Paul's that Paul's introducing, but he's kind of adding to what he's already been said here. Secondly, once he states the doctrine, he makes an application from the historical story of the people of Israel. And then thirdly, I want to just make a brief application. So those are the three points this morning. We want to see the doctrine from this text, the argument for the doctrine from the text, and then the application of the doctrine from the text, all of those things. But let's start. I told you it's going to be a doctrinal sermon. A lot of these in Romans are, and so let's start with the doctrine. Let me just read again from Romans 4. And then summarize. Uh, let, me, let me start uh, with verse 3, and let's pay attention to verses 3 and 4 and 5. Would you look there with me? For what does the scripture say, Paul writes? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So here's the doctrine. The doctrine is just that righteousness is imputed righteousness. The only way to be righteous is to be counted righteous. Righteousness is imputed righteousness. Notice the word count there. Do you see that word? It's repeated 10 times in Romans 4. It dominates the chapter, and it's an accounting term. It means to make a deposit into someone's account. And so the only way to be righteous, Paul's telling us here, is to be counted righteous. God does not make us righteous. He declares us righteous. He counts us righteous because of Jesus. If you're a Christian, Christ is your righteousness. That's the doctrine. Now let's work this out just by going verse by verse uh, through this part of the text. So Paul starts in verse 1. Look what he says. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? Now there's some question about the prepositional phrase, according to the flesh. I'm going to suggest we read it a little differently than the ESV translated, translates it here to say something like this. What did Abraham gain by the flesh? Or, I think, what 
was the lesson Abraham learned about the flesh. That seems to me uh, to bring out the meaning of the verse, that righteousness cannot be gained through the flesh. Flesh, referring in Abraham's case to his natural strength and abilities. What do we, what do we know about Abraham? Well, he was as old as dirt. Remember this? He's, he's 100 years old when Isaac was born. His, his wife was not only old too, but she was barren and past childbearing age. It was a physical impossibility for the child to be born. His power could not have caused the birth. It had to be God's power. And so we could say the flesh refers to, and this is Lloyd-Jones' words, anything that man is prone to rely on in the matter of salvation. Listen, any kind of work or anything that may be true of us or that may belong to us on which we tend to rest for our salvation, of which we would then boast. Now, what did Abraham learn? Well, he learned that his physical power was not enough. It couldn't bring about the promise. And what do we learn? We learn that the flesh is no good. It can't produce righteousness. The flesh operates in a works righteousness system. Look there in verse 2, justified by works. In other words, you do. That's, that's justification by works. You do. It comes from you. And Paul says, Paul says that can't be. The lesson of the story of Abraham is that it couldn't come from him. It, had, it, it was impossible. It had to come from God. It had to be a miracle. And he believed God, we're told. He trusted God's power to accomplish what he could not do in his weakness. He trusted God's word above what he could see with his eyes. And it says that, verse 3, when he believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul says there's justification by works and there's justification by faith. And Paul said in chapter 3, by works, no human being shall be justified in his sight. So there's only one way. This is, this is the doctrine. There's only one way then to be right with God, faith. And Paul is very clear what faith is. Look at the description in, in chapter 4, verse 5. He says of the person who believes, he says this. The one, I'm talking about the one who does not work but believes. Do you see that? The one who does not work but believes. So believing is the opposite of working, which is why when we receive members into our church, the way we ask them about their faith, do you know the, what the wording is? Have you caught on? Do you receive? And what's the next word? Do you rest in Jesus as he's offered to you in the gospel? In other words, are you still trying to work this thing out? Or have you realized yet that you can't do it and you have to just trust God to do it for you? Are you resting in Christ? Believing is the opposite of working. When you believe, you stop working. You stop relying upon yourself. And so there's work, there's works, and there's faith. And Paul puts the two side by side because they're the only two options. Every single person in the world, every one of us in the room this morning, every single person here, every soul in this crowded room, you're either working or you're believing. Either righteousness is a wage these are Paul's words, or it's a gift. That's, four, that's uh, verses four and five. And wage, look there, let's talk about those terms for just a minute. Wage goes a couple of different ways. Some people feel that they owe God because of bad behavior in the past. Some shameful sin that is part of their past or just a lifestyle of selfishness. And what they get religion, and then uh, what, what they do is they spend the rest of their life trying to pay off the debt that they owe with, with good. They owe God, in other words, 
a good life for all the bad that they've done, and then they spend their whole life trying to pay off uh, the debt, all the bad, with, with paying in good. And then there are those who think that they owe God because of fears about the future. They, in other words, here's what they do. They, they build up credit so that when something really bad happens, they can cash the check. Now, you're laughing more at that one. So I got you. I got some of you right there. This is me, by the way. So when a kid goes away to college and goes off the deep end or, or you get a diagnosis, you can say to God, listen, I spent all these years doing good. And that's why. This is why. Right here. This is what I knew was coming. And so I, I spent all of those years doing all that good stuff. So now you owe me. I've been good. I've made right decisions. Now give me what I'm due. I've earned it. It's a way of ensuring our, our future would be safe. But here's what I want you to see. That's working for wages. It's working for wages. It's not Christianity. Christianity's gift. It's a grace. Look down at the bottom of the passage, verse 16. Paul sums everything up. He said, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise might rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So the promise rests on grace. It's not wages. It's a gift. You can't do enough good to make up for the bad. You can't put God into your debt. It's all gift. We prefer wages. You know why? Because if it's wages, then we really are in control. If there's something we need, we can just work a little harder and make sure we have it. It's in our hands, but if it's a gift, then we're not in control. We're in God's hands. And ironically, here's the thing. Ironically, Paul says, because it is grace and not wages, it's a sure thing. The only sure thing is grace. Jesus told a story about a man who owned a vineyard to explain the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and here's the story. Early in the morning, about 6 a.m., he went out and hired laborers to work in the vineyard, and they agreed on a wage, a denarius, which was a standard daily wage for a working person. Uh, but I guess there was too much work because at 9 a.m., he went back out, hired more workers, and promised to pay them a fair wage as well. And then he did the same thing at 12 p.m., and then again at 3 p.m., and then one more time at 5 p.m. in the day, the whistle, the whistle you know, rang out at 6 o'clock in the evening. And so there were workers who had worked for 12 hours, and then some who had worked for 9, and then some for 6, and some for 3. And then there was a whole group of people that had only worked one hour. And when it was time to pay them, the master paid all of the workers the exact same wage. One denarius. The one who worked 12 hours made the same amount of money as the one who worked one hour. And what's the lesson? Do you know what the lesson is? There are no wages in the kingdom of heaven. There's only grace. The worker who worked 12 hours is no more worthy than the one who only worked one hour. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says, Romans 3, 23. And are all are justified freely by his grace as a gift. Both the one-hour guy and the 12-hour guy are ungodly, but God, according to Paul, is a God who justifies the ungodly, verse 5. So when you believe that, when you know you have no wage, that it has to be gift, that's the faith that is counted as righteousness, verse 5. Not faith instead of works, faith that is not faith that is meritorious in some sense, no faith that knows that even faith is a gift and not a work. That it's all, all of the Lord. Well, that's the doctrine. Okay, righteousness is imputed righteousness. And in verse six, Paul begins to develop his argument from the Old Testament, from David and Abraham. And we're gonna take them in reverse order. Okay, uh, so Paul uses Abraham to make a historical argument. 
And then he quotes David from Psalm 32 to make a theological argument. And let's look at each. But before we do, I want to just make this note. Uh, these are Paul turns to the Old Testament. And, and that's a really significant thing. He's using the Old Testament to back up and, and to uh, produce the argument for the doctrine that he's making. Which means that this is the way God has always saved his people. It is an ancient heresy to believe that God saved the people in the Old Testament a different way than he saved the people in the New Testament. Righteousness came to Abraham the same way it comes to every New Testament believer. This has always been God's way. In John 8, 56, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. You know what that means? That means Abraham, in some sense, understood God's way of salvation 2,000 years before Jesus came. Paul's gospel is not something new. It's something very old there in the Old Testament, too. And so let's talk about Abraham first, then, okay? So skip over to David for just a second. Go down to verse 10. Paul asks a question. Was Abraham counted righteous before or after he was circumcised? Let me put it another way. Here's the real question Paul's asking. He's saying, what was his righteousness? Was it his faith or was it his circumcision? What made him right with God? Was it that he believed or that, was it that he obeyed? Do you, do you have to believe um, all the right doctrine, in other words? Do you have to keep all the rules? Do you have to belong to the right group? Is that the way to righteousness? And Paul's answer is very, very clear. He's, his answer is a firm no, and he gives two reasons. And here are his two reasons. Look there. This is, i got to like zoom through this, but here's what I want you to see. The first is the phrase Paul quoted in 4.3 about Abraham believing God and being counted righteous is from Genesis 15. So Abraham believed in Genesis 15. He was circumcised in Genesis 17, which came first. You see? It was before his circumcision. It didn't have anything to do with circumcision. That's his first argument. But then he makes a second argument. And the second argument is that circumcision wasn't a badge of righteousness. Look there in verse 11. It was a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. In other words, circumcision was never meant to be seen as, oh, that person's you know, they've had that there. Okay, that happened. So they're on the right team. They've got they've got the right belief. They they really got it together. No, circumcision was was a sign and seal of the work that God must come and do. That something about us needed to be cut off. In the most intimate places we need to be cut. Because there's something really wrong with us that God must come and rectify himself. Circumcision was never meant to be a badge of righteousness, it was a sign pointing us to the true method of righteousness and the promise that God was faithful to do it. Now, what does all this mean for us? We'll look at the next verse. The purpose was to make him, we read in verse 11, the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of his faith. In other words, What matters is not whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, but whether you have Abraham's faith. Circumcision without Abraham's faith is not righteousness, but Abraham's faith without circumcision is. What makes one a child of Abraham? This is a a question of great debate in the New Testament. The Jews said, well, it's that we have physical descent. It's that we too have been circumcised like he was. It's Jewishness, they said. Paul said, no, no. What makes a person a child of Abraham is faith. But what was Abraham's faith? What, well, the theological argument that David makes, you know, shows us exactly what Abraham's faith was, the same faith that, it, that David had, the same faith that all the saints in the Old Testament had. And so let's, let's look there then. So the theological argument 
in this quote from Psalm 32 is that not just Abraham, but David and all those in the Old Testament who truly believed Paul's gospel, they knew this, verse 7, that righteousness was apart from works. Further evidence in Psalm 32 where David's saying, and I mean, this is, these are beautiful words. I, my prayer for you this morning was that the words of this psalm would just land on your heart, that, that it would be like stick, you know, super glue on your heart in my heart, that we would really hear these words. They would come to our hearts. And so, Father, I pray that even now for us. But listen to these words. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Isn't that amazing? Now, three words of explanation because the, the, the language is so wonderful here. Here's what this psalm is teaching us. First, it says God forgives sins. And that word means he sends away your sins. He's removed your sins from you as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103 says. He has cast them into the depths of the sea and he remembers them no more. It's a reference to the scapegoat in Israel where part of the Day of Atonement liturgy was that the people would confess their sins by placing their hands on a goat. And so the whole body would confess all of their sins symbolically transferring their sins to this goat, and then the goat would be kicked out into the wilderness to never be seen again. And it's a picture of what God does with our sins. He casts them out. You with me? These are the amen moments, people, okay? This is the good stuff. It doesn't get any better than this. God forgives sins. Not only does he forgive sins, we're told he covers our sins. And the Greek word there is calypto which refers to something that is hidden or concealed. Apocalypse, that word, refers to something that has been hidden that's, that's being revealed. Here, this is something that has been, you know, notorious that is now being hidden and concealed and covered. God doesn't bring up our sins. He doesn't put the spotlight on our sins. He works to cover them by his grace. And the third thing we learn is that he's a God also who does not count our sins against us. He does not take them into account. They're not on the ledger. There's a debt, but he doesn't demand payment. Now, let me apply this in just a couple of ways. The first way would be that as we read about the kind of God that, he, that God is, that the God of the, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God in Jesus Christ, the kind of God he is, part of the way we come to learn and know him as that kind of God is to experience this same forgiving, covering, not counting our sins against us kind of community of faith. My heart is so hungry to be a part of a people that forgive, that cover sin, that don't treat one another according to their sins, but who are overly charitable, always looking for the good in one another and not the bad because we are loving the way we've been loved. Can we be that? Let's be that. But then the second, the question becomes how? Uh, where does the payment come from? If God just says, you know, I, I, I forgive this debt, he doesn't demand the payment. How, we're back to the argument Paul made in chapter 3. How can God do this and still be just? Every debt demands payment, justice. So he doesn't demand payment from us. How does that happen? Well, it's because he has to pay the debt himself. And I know I've been dense, and I know the kids are in here, and so I thought of a way that I could involve the kids this morning, and I want to do a little want to do a little thing. I don't know how this is going to work, me being way up here and you guys being out there so you can't really see. But I have two books here. Uh, one of them, you, you can't see it, but there's a big D on it that stands for Drew. And then on this book here, 
there's a big cross because this is going to be this is going to be the ledger of Drew, and then this is going to be the ledger of of Jesus. Okay, and here's how I want you to see how this works. Uh, one containing the record of my life and who I am and what I've done. Uh, and so, if we were to make a list of all the bad stuff, okay, and I'm not going to ask for help today. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, that would be a little too much right now, to be honest with you. I don't know that my little heart could take it. So, I'm just going to do some of it myself. So, keep your opinions to yourself this morning, if you would. If you absolutely feel like you got to talk to me about something, email me later, and I'll add it to the book, I guess. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to just confess some sin. I'm going to say, I, I am, I'm proud. Uh, I, I, I think I'm better than others, and I look down on them too much. And so I'm going to put that in my little book because that's part of the record of who I am. You may not know it, but I, I can be really selfish and impatient. None of you say amen up in the front row, please. That would be hurtful too. So I yell at people who get in my way. You ought to drive around town with me someday. Stupid people who can't drive fast enough and stuff like that. I'm full of unbelief. You can't, if, if you say amen, I'll just assume you're, you're, you're agreeing that you're like me and not that you're affirming what I'm saying about myself. So unbelief, which I'm full of anxiety and fear and, it make, and I make little of God. And that makes me a coward, to be honest. I can really be a coward at times. I don't speak the truth. Uh, I lie because it's convenient. I don't risk as I should. I use my words as a weapon too much. And if you think that's bad, my thoughts are even worse. I'm full of all kinds of contempt. I murder people. I'm just adding these to my book over here. I murder people with my mind. I hold grudges. I have a long memory of people's sins. I don't cover the sins of others. I rejoice in their sin because it makes me feel better about myself. And I'm hungry for glory. I, uh, I'm so driven towards success uh, that, and at the expense of my physical and emotional health sometimes. I want to win more than I want to love. Okay, and that's true of me. That's, we could be here all day, okay? But now, let's talk about this other book contains the record of Jesus' life, who he was, who he is, and what he has done. What, what do we learn about Jesus? He was a person of profound humility. Uh, he became nothing in the incarnation and then all throughout his life. He was full of love for others, unlike me, he, for God and for others, saying no to himself to do good. He was full of faith. I'm full of unbelief. He was full of faith. He never lost sight of the Father. See, I'm just adding all these things. So this book is full of the record of the things that are true of him. He was profoundly courageous. He spoke the truth always, no matter what the consequences, and faced death undaunted. He was patient and kind and forgiving. Even those who nailed his hands to the cross, he said, Father, I forgive them for they know not what they do. Remember that? And unlike me, he... Uh, he never not once acted in self-interest. He never acted apart from his father. He loved God with all of his heart and soul and strength 100% of the time from the very first breath to the last. And he loved others more than himself 100% without hesitation. And so here is the record of my life and all of the yucky stuff that is true of me. And here is the record of the beauty of what Jesus has done and his record of righteousness. And here's what Paul is saying. Here's what God does in the gospel. He takes, he takes my name. And he puts it on his book. And he takes his and he puts it on mine. And on the cross, God counted our sins against him. 
He does not count them against us because he's counted them against him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. God imputed our sins to him on the cross and he paid the penalty. And now they are gone. They're covered by his blood. They're off the ledger. But here's the thing. Do you, do you know where I'm going? That's not all. That's only half the good news. Because the other part of the good news is, is that though our sins were imputed to Christ on the cross, now his righteousness has been imputed to us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Which means that on the cross he was counted guilty in our place and now we're counted as righteous in him. The whole record of his life is now credited to us even though we had nothing to do with it. Not because we're any of those things. I'm none of those things, but I'm in him. And so God counts them all as if they belong to me too. That's what it means to be counted righteous. So kid, kids, Christianity is not about being a good person and never making any mistakes. That's silly. You're going to make tons of mistakes. And your mistakes don't, make, don't have any bearing upon your relationship with God in Christ. It's not about being a good person. It's not about your sins. Excuse me. It is about your sins not being counted against you, but instead the righteousness of Jesus being credited to your account. It's like this. You look at the bank statement. On, on, you know, one day and you're broke and the bills are coming due and you don't know how you're going to make payments. And then you wake up one day and you put, pull the account up online and there's been a $1 million deposit into the account. That's the gospel. That's the doctrine Paul's working through. And so if that's true, then how do we apply this? Let me just very quickly. Let me, let me just try to apply this in, in one very specific way, and then all of next week is going to be about application of these truths. Tim Keller said that the sin underneath every sin is a failure to rest in the grace of the gospel and to try instead to reestablish a righteousness of your own apart from Christ. Unbelief. And so the real problem in our life is unbelief. The pro, every, every sanctification issue that we're going through, every problem to obey, every... Every cold, hard heart that we, that we suffer inside of ourselves is due to not believing the truth of what I just tried to, to illustrate for you. And it comes in two forms. It comes in, in pride and fear. And pride says, well, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm okay on my own. I mean, yeah, there's some pretty bad things, but there's some good things mixed in there too. And really, if you balance it all out, it's, it's not that bad. I'm, I'm okay on my own. I don't need the gospel. Fear says, well, I'm too bad. I'm so discredited. I'm such a failure. There's no hope for me. The gospel's too good to be true. And this passage is bracketed by these two kinds of unbelief. So if you look back at the end of chapter 3, Paul says, if justification is by faith and not works, then on the one hand, you can't go around boasting. Boasting is trying to reestablish your righteousness apart from faith. It's going back to justification by works, by taking credit for things that you had nothing to do with. And if you need a model, our president's a really great model of doing that these days, it seems like of just putting out there for everybody, hey, I did this, and everybody's like, yeah, I don't think you did that. But we do it, don't we? We do it. Look at what a wonderful person I am. Or, this is my favorite, look at what a wonderful life I have. It must be because I'm such a wonderful person. Right? Look at my kids. Aren't they great? Yeah, I'm, 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 it's because I'm such a good dad. Look at all the good things happening to me. I must deserve them. Hashtag blessed. And if you know me, you know. 
I have a little thing in my office somebody bought me one time, hashtag blessed. I keep it right there just to remind me. And what we typically mean by that is, look at how awesome my life is. Aren't I great? Hashtag blessed. Romans says faith means no boasting. If you go back to boasting, you're moving away from righteousness as a gift and not a wage. Because the person who knows that, the person who knows righteousness as a gift and not a wage, has no choice but to live with a profound sense of humility and gratitude. I can't take credit for anything. It's all grace. I mean, the person who knows it's grace doesn't ever feel like they are any better than anybody else because being better than is not good enough. They might have something to boast about, but not before God. And people of faith live their lives before God, not the adoring public. They don't need to constantly point out how great they are, how terrible other people are to make themselves feel better. They can be quiet. They can be hidden. They can encourage others with kindness. So humility, not boasting. But then also, don't miss courage, and fear, courage, not fear and self-doubt. And that's what comes next in Romans 4. Abraham was a man of tremendous courage and faith. He did not waver concerning God's promises, it says, but he grew strong in the faith. You see that down in verse, uh, verse 20. He gave glory to God. He was bold. God told him to go. The Bible says he didn't know where he was going, but he went anyway. His life was full of radical risk-taking and faith. He fought through self-pity to hold on um, boldly confident in God. And that's what it means. That kind of thing is what it means to walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. I love that phrase, verse 12. Walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. A Christian is a true child of Abraham who walks in the footsteps of his faith, forsaking pride and boasting for humility and gratitude, but also forsaking a guilty conscience for bold confidence before God. That's the unique signature of the person whose righteousness is Christ. They believe like Abraham did. They live like Abraham did. But that's next week. So come back. Now, as we come to this table this morning, here's the confession of faith that we would make. Here is what the person who's absent of, of all boasting and all self-pity, uh, wholly resting and trusting in Christ. Here's the confession. We're going to sing it in just a minute. Listen to these words. Here's what we would say. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. Let's pray. Can we pray? So, Father, we are in ourselves guilty. Guilty is charged, full of unrighteousness and ungodliness and deserving condemnation and wrath. And yet you are a God who justifies the ungodly, not by making them anything other than what they are. Ultimately, of course, ultimately you've set us on a path towards holiness, and you've told us to be holy for your holy, but in the matter of justification, you have made us right solely on the basis of the work of Christ on our behalf. We are, as Luther said, at the, at the, same, the very same time, unjust and also made righteous. We are sinners, and we are justified. And so on the one hand, we have no cause to boast or be proud. On the other hand, we have no cause to be full of self-loathing and fear. But you have told us to come boldly before the throne of grace because by your gospel, you've made that access available to us. And so I pray that that would be just what we do, that we would shake off the chains of lethargy and cold heartedness and sin and come running, come running to the promise of grace for all who believe like Abraham did, which is represented for us in this meal. We now partake of together and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. There's an old hymn that says... Uh, that the only fitness that God requires of us is to feel our need of him. Uh, all you need is need. 
All you need is nothing. And so if that, if that uh, song is the cry of your heart, Lord, I need you, every hour I need you, then this benediction belongs to you. And so we reach out our hands as if to say, I have nothing in my hands. I'm, I, my life, all of my life is a receiving of his fullness into my emptiness, his strength into my need. Uh, and, and the cry of your heart, if that is the cry of your heart, he is a willing, faithful father and savior uh, to fill your life with everything you need to be uh, faithful to him. And so uh, receive the promise of this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.